Welcome to the Health Leaders Finance Podcast. I'm Jack O'Brien, Finance Editor for Health Leaders. My guest today is Brad Hawes, CFO of UI Healthcare in Iowa City, Iowa, and a member of the Health Leaders CFO Exchange. Brad, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Jack. Happy to be here. While a major concern during the COVID-19 pandemic has been the cancellation of elective surgeries and the search for other reliable revenue generators, hospital and health system executives have also been faced with the challenge of instituting effective expense control measures. Cutting costs has always been an important part of the financial equation for provider organizations, but now in the face of severe bottom line pressures and an uncertain future, it might be more critical than ever. With that in mind, let's start our conversation there. Brad, what have been the most effective expense control measures that your organization has put into place in response to the COVID-19 pandemic? So we get to lead off with a, a tough question here. I would say in, in our organization, it has been a, a balance. Uh, our organization, similar to just about every other healthcare organization, is heavy in labor expense. And so we immediately started conversations around uh, with declining volumes, can we reduce uh, our staffing component, whether that is just fewer people here or as many organizations have considered and many have implemented, do we need to do pay reductions, furloughs, and those kinds of things. Um, and the, the balance, which was difficult, is that especially in the early days, while volumes were down because of the cancellation of surgeries, as you described, we were all prepping for, planning for uh, a potential surge. Uh, luckily, in, in our environment, uh, we really didn't have uh, a surge that really tapped our capacity. But in the, in the early weeks of the, of the crisis, we were really worried about uh, you know, doing furloughs or layoffs because we thought if this really happens and being the only academic tertiary quaternary provider in our state, that we would be kind of the epicenter and we would need to be able to recall or have staff uh, present for us. And so we ended up taking people that uh, had capacity, so to speak, because their normal jobs were not uh, as necessary. And we redirected them into uh, activities or areas where we were needing increased staff. So we created designated clinics, as an example, for intake of suspected COVID patients and testing. Uh, we had quite a number of requirements actually put in place by uh, the governor of our state in terms of screening uh, verbally and temperature screens at every entrance to our hospital. And so you can imagine, you know, 15,000 people every day having to go through some kind of a screening protocol. We didn't want to have long lines backed up in, in addition to the patients. So uh, just recently uh, at the uh, more, I guess, probably later in the cycle, than many places, we have implemented uh, a combination of salary reductions, uh, unpaid time away from work, or the voluntary, I guess, instead of unpaid time, donations of accrued vacation time. We've Part of the reason for the delay in that was that part of our workforce uh, is part of a collective bargaining. There are actually two collective bargaining units here in our organization and working through the logistics about what uh, contractually we could do and couldn't do took us a little bit more time than uh, we had with others. And then obviously 
Um, in our situation, uh, we're all part of one tax ID number. So the faculty uh, are participants in our, in our financials, but working through those same kinds of adjustments, pay reductions, time away, or vacation givebacks uh, are uh, subject to the university policies, ultimately subject to the regential or the regent system within the state of Iowa. So we've considered all of those. Uh, we've um, implemented many of those. A couple that we considered that we have not implemented would be uh, reductions or suspension in retirement contributions because we're just part of a part of a state system. Uh, and then we're obviously taking a hard look at our other um, management tools. We have put hiring freezes in place. Uh, we have taken hard looks at other expenditures that wouldn't be as, uh, considered crucial uh, and implemented those uh, in, in, our, in our plans. So a, a variety, but because of our, uh, na the nature of our business, staffing is the primary area where we have to go. I appreciate you detailing how your organization has gone about facing these challenges, and I wanted to follow up with just your opinion or your insights into how the thinking about expense control has changed due to the pandemic. I know that obviously it's something that's always been on the table for organizations that need to drive revenues, but also balance it with cutting costs where you can. What do you see being uh, consistent principles related to expense control? And look forward looking, do you think there's going to be a change in thought maybe among hospital and health system CFOs as it relates to expense controls going forward? It's interesting. So I'll, I'll just maybe highlight a couple things. And uh, culturally, I've been very proud of our organization because uh, we, and I, I don't, I, you know, Iowa's kind of a unique state and our organizational structure is unique in that uh, the hospital, the practice plan and the school of medicine are all one legal entity. Um, but we, from the very beginning, led out with, we're in this together. And so uh, every we our expectation was that everybody would participate in uh, expense reductions or schedule modifications. Uh, you know, very early in our conversations, people would say, "But I'm on a grant, and so why would you reduce my salary when it doesn't save the institution money?" Or, you know, my salary comes from a gift, and so that's not going to save you money. Uh, but uh, with very few exceptions, people said, regardless of the funding source, uh, you know, we realize that we're in this together. And um, we, we put in some principles that said the staff uh, take the least amount of uh, reductions. And we even had some thresholds within the staff to say those that are uh, at kind of the lower end of the compensation scales will take the least. Uh, and then we went to faculty, uh, whether those are physicians, uh, clinical providers, or researchers. They took the next amount, then the clinical departments, and then finally the executives had higher reductions. And so uh, I think people felt like that was the right approach, and I think it made people feel like we were in this together. There had been prior situations here at Iowa where where they didn't do it all together and, and different groups were treated differently. Unions were treated differently than voluntary staff. Faculty were treated differently than executives. And faculty on the healthcare side were treated differently than faculty in the rest of the university. But this time everybody was kind of in it together. And I think that was really important. 
Um, in terms of where you think it might change or we think it will change going forward, uh, I'm going to talk more on the faculty side, but then I'll come back to the staff. The, the process of reducing faculty compensation has been candidly more onerous than I thought it would be, partly because our compensation plans vary across our departments. Uh, the, the, the amount of pay that's at risk varies. The keys or the, the, the key performance metrics that are in those compensation plans vary. And so we had a wide variety of approaches. Um, some that had pay at risk already, there was just kind of an automatic reduction that happened by just implementing the compensation schedule that would be in place um, in, in some of our surgical departments, as an example. But in others, where they really didn't have much pay at risk or it wasn't at risk for clinical volumes, then we had to get into base pay reductions. How are those implemented? How long will they last? And a much more difficult kind of uh, process. And so well, I think where it's leading us to uh, is that we need to be a little more consistent in making sure that everybody has compensation at risk for reasonable performance uh, and that performance would adjust with the financial times, so to speak. And so that if we have a second spike, I guess, in COVID or we have some other kind of emergency like this down the road, that we're able to be a little more nimble and agile than we were uh, able to be in this, in this round. Um, the other thing that I think we've put in place, which is a positive for staff and faculty, is to create a win-win environment. So uh, our organization has been really good at bringing back volumes very quickly, and our financials show that. And what we have committed to our employees, and uh, whether they be staff or faculty, is that when the finances improve, that we will uh, share that back so that we don't ask for reductions or staff uh, to take time off, improve the financials, and then just simply keep that in the corporate structure. And I think that has created some goodwill and some transparency that has been helpful uh, in, our, in our processes. I appreciate your response to that, and especially that last part you touched on regarding the goodwill and kind of the culture aspect. I think that as much as we, fo we focus about this on kind of the financial perspective, there is just as much a human element that you have to obviously account for being a leader in the organization. And kind of to pivot off of that, I'm curious, you, you talked about potentially planning for the future and obviously there's the immediate future with, is there gonna be a, a surge like you're seeing in other states currently? Is there gonna be a second wave in the fall or the winter? But there's also a concern from your organization about just the things that had been planned or had been in the works before all this happened. So as you look at some of the long-term plans that your organization was pursuing or considering before the pandemic, how has that been affected, obviously, by the outbreak of the virus? And how are you able to balance any sort of projects or capital expenditures you're looking at with these cuts and reductions that you obviously need to focus on in the short term? It's a great question. Two or three kind of key points I would offer in, in response. The first one, which is easy, is that um, major capital that uh, seemed to be on the table, uh, we have we've put kind of a pause on and delayed. The funding becomes more difficult, but even the messaging is a consideration. How do you ask for reductions that impact people's personal lives and at the same time say, but we're going to be spending, you know, a, 
couple hundred million dollars on an expansion project that's over here to the side. And so uh, we, we put a pause on those kinds of things uh, also because we just really weren't certain and still aren't certain about the extent or the duration of the, of the crisis. Having said that, we really feel strongly that coming out of the crisis, we don't want to come out in a, a situation where we're still struggling to survive and unable to capitalize on potential strategic opportunities or unable to implement a strategy that, that ensures our success going forward. And so, you know, we, th we think that there may be new partnership opportunities either with physicians or other hospitals uh, that, that maybe the, you know, unfortunately the finances have maybe pushed them into a different situation or the, you know, the, can't, the pandemic has maybe created situations where people say, you know, just the response, the operational response would have been better if we had more partnership. And so we, we were looking, actively looking and having conversations where those things might come into play. And then uh, we are still doing strategic planning and strategic capital uh, uh, planning. So we, we actually were in the final stages of selecting an external consultant to come in and help us with a clinical strategic plan update. Uh, the leadership team here at Iowa is fairly new. The vice president for medical affairs has only been here about two and a half years. I'm coming up on my two-year anniversary and the CEO of our hospital uh, has been here even less than that, about a, uh, 15 months or so. So as a new leadership team, we wanted to get a fresh strategy and look, the pandemic hit and, and we pushed pause on that, but uh, we kind of confronted the question about, well, should we proceed? Knowing that external consultants are expensive, uh, should we just you know maybe rethink that whole thing? And our decision was that now actually maybe more than before, we need to be uh, emerging from the situation with a more honed strategy, with a sharper point to make sure that we are able to recover from uh, you know the financial implications here. So I think you know inevitably it's probably going to lead to a reduction in the capital that's available. We have kind of we do a five to seven year forecast that includes borrowing and capital expenditures. We've gone through some exercises to say how do we trim that capital. How do we focus it on the things that uh, are really going to help drive some margin? And that's an ongoing exercise. But I guess in response, we really feel like strategic execution and continued focus on uh, the things that we would have done before is, is probably more important now than it maybe was even before the pandemic. It will be interesting, just one sidelight. We have some bonds, uh, municipal bonds that just got outside of the 10-year window that are callable and with rates being so low we are going to market actually uh, in the next uh, month or so we're looking for some refinancings and some of our our debt and you know initially our uh, advisors were kind of hesitant saying healthcare as a sector has been downgraded by the rating agencies um, not sure that now is the right time for you to go to market even though what you're really doing is just expense savings but the credit risk uh, is kind of interesting. So uh, we'll, we'll, it'll be interesting to see how it, it, it comes out. Our financial results 
uh, have actually been better than we were initially forecasting. And I think that has uh, given us some more optimism in that process. But, you know, I think there are just some, some basic block and tackling kinds of things that still need to happen regardless of, of, the, of the pandemic. I did want to pick up on that last note that you talked about with the optimism and kind of your financial standing. I mean, we, as of this recording, we are at the midway point of 2020. And obviously, if I, we, if we had this conversation at the start of the year, you probably wouldn't have said, this is where I expect to be on July 1st. I certainly wouldn't have said that given my position. But if we were to have this conversation again towards the end of 2020, where would you expect to see your organization in terms of a financial standing? And I'm not asking you to play Nostradamus or try and predict the future, but just in terms of a ballpark of where you expect to be, what are your expectations for your organization going forward? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So we actually just yesterday closed our fiscal year, obviously still working on the books, but that gives us a good opportunity to pause and reflect. So I'll describe for you kind of a little, the evolution that we went through. So through February, which would have been, you know, eight months into our fiscal year, uh, we were actually on pace to have a record, uh, a record margin, very full. Our, I would say our biggest challenge at that point was uh, physical capacity and just really thinking hard about how do we get that capacity? Should it be on campus? Should it be a new location? Should it be with partners? All those kinds of things. And then obviously mid-March, uh, the, the cancellation of cases and those things hit just with immediacy. And I do remember my team running numbers saying, if we cancel our surgical cases, um, this is the revenue impact. And <laughs> I sent them back to, to verify the numbers because I was so stunned at the magnitude of what we were seeing. And so we, uh, we immediately started some transparent town halls. Uh, with our March numbers, and then certainly with our April numbers, and we were experiencing similar things to everybody across the country in those cancellations, and had not really seen a lot of COVID patients. And so our financials in the months of uh, March and April were just terrible. And we were sounding the alarm bells, you know, far and wide saying as the longer this goes, the more painful it's going to be, and we are in a tough spot. But in mid- um, May, our governor lifted the restriction on surgical cases, and our organization, I think, responded in a way that I'm really proud. And we had a backlog of patients that clinically, um, you know, you might call them elective, but I'm not sure that's the right uh, approach. People in significant pain, delayed cancer uh, surgeries, uh, you know, we've documented and others have across the country that the incidents of stroke and, and even heart attacks coming to the hospital declined. I don't think that those things probably declined in actuality, just we weren't seeing them. But our, our May results came back very well. And actually in our June results, I think we're actually gonna be at budget for the month of June without stimulus funding. Now that's not back on the pace we were in February because we were really humming along at a place far in excess of our budget. But to be back at budget in June, uh, I think is, is something I, uh, even in April, would have thought, well, I'm not sure we're gonna get back there. So we've, we've kind of suspended our budget. We're doing three month rolling projections. And the big unknowns obviously are two, two things, I think, volumes and payer mix. 
with the number of folks that have either had changes of employment, um, furloughs, I think probably more furloughs coming later in the fall when people who took stimulus money will now have the opportunity to, to reduce their payrolls. We're worried about the, pay, the, the payer mix significantly. Um, so we're planning those risks. Uh, our budgeted margin in the next fiscal year uh, is probably running at about half of what we budgeted pre-pandemic, but still positive. And so uh, what we've put in place are things that more aggressively manage our expense structure uh, in terms of bodies, because we've now made arrangements to make sure we have the beds, the ventilators, and those kinds of things necessary. And now if the volume's not there, we are reducing our scheduled uh, staff. One of the things that's a little harder for us to predict, and I think this is what's happening across the country, with the recent surge in positive test results, people being COVID positive, that's starting to impact our staff. And so where before we didn't see hardly any COVID impact in our workforce, we're now seeing that. And our in the you know when they're positive, they have to be isolated. When they when you do the tracing. If they've been exposed, then they need to be quarantined. And so we've actually had a couple of our units where we've had to reduce the capacity, bed capacity primarily, because some of our staff have been around somebody in the community that's that's uh, been positive or suspected to be positive. And so we're trying to really send a message in our community and amongst our employees to say, hey, the precautions you're taking at work to protect the patients those are important out in the community as well. So as you re-enter uh, the community in terms of restaurants or you know, social engagements, larger groupings, uh, don't forget because it not only impacts your family, but it impacts your ability to be here at work. So that's a third variable that we're just starting to see and it's a little bit harder to plan for uh, as we work forward. But, but in total, I guess back to your question, Jack, I, we have a positive budget for the year not the same budget that we would have put forward, but still with a positive uh, net operating income. It's interesting, a couple of the points that you brought up there, especially about the more rolling forecasting and budgeting process. I've talked to a number of other CFOs who have said that they've moved towards that as well. And they said that's been one of the biggest changes that they've had to adjust to is just how much changes in relation to the outbreak and how they've had to adapt and to borrow your language, be more nimble as it relates to their processes. So it's interesting to see that you're following that same track. I just wanted to, for our last question, uh, you've been at several of our events before and you're always so articulate explaining your ideas and your thought processes. I'm curious if there's any sort of advice that you would give to your fellow health system CFOs who are dealing with some of the same challenges or maybe even heightened challenges depending on what markets or populations they serve. You know, Are there any sort of a piece of advice that you would give to them words of encouragement, anything of that nature. Yeah, and, and this phrase, I, two phrases I think in this have, have become really common. Uh, I can't re remember ever using the word unprecedented uh, more often than, than we have in this. But where that leads me to is maybe the second phrase, which is uh, using the crisis to create organizational change, I think is uh, maybe an un expected gift and and so rolling things out or making changes in 
compensation structures or standing up telehealth services or considering different partnerships or, or new locations for services. Those have been things that, you know, sometimes in our organization, we just would get kind of stuck, run, you know, kind of spinning our wheels in the mud, so to speak, with some inertia. And, uh, you know, whether it's because it's so, you know, so widespread and everybody understands the issue, there's been a lot less reticence to make changes. You know, our, our IT teams have been just standing ready to, to change the screen flow in our medical records. Our coding teams are constantly looking at the coding advice and uh, the changes being required by the payers for telehealth. We just we have a lot of you know compensation changes that would have taken years are being we're able to implement those things in in weeks or months and so you know you hate to say don't waste a crisis but kind of that's where we are um, and I, I think that's maybe one of the unexpected things that are there uh, you know what's interesting to us also is whether it's from a university setting or even our healthcare setting uh, I think the crisis has also reinforced the need for our services. You know, we talk about with our students and the wider university how much people really are tired of the video and that the in-person teaching, the in-person learning, uh, in our cases, the in-person clinical care, it just it has reinforced that that's important and that we have a vital place, I think, in a lot of uh, our communities. And so I think we can capitalize on that. Our, you know, it's interesting, our patient experience scores have been really even higher during the pandemic than they were before, even with visitor restriction policies, even with the PPE requirements, because I think people realize the importance of the services we deliver. And I think that's something we can capitalize on. I think you touched on something very key there, which is kind of the thought process of you don't realize how much you appreciate something until it's gone. And I think for a lot of patients and healthcare consumers, seeing that they don't have the immediate access to their hospital or their local healthcare facilities, it, it rings true at a time like this. So I'm, it, it doesn't surprise me to hear that those patient scores have gone up or maybe exceed even what they were before the, the pandemic hit. Yeah, that's been a, uh, that was unexpected to me as well, but I, I think it, it means a lot. You know, the, the things that uh, we saw, you know, in celebration of the healthcare workers, uh, whether it was in New York at seven o'clock, people out on their balconies, you know, hitting pots and pans together, clapping. We had situations here outside the hospital where the community would come with signs or their cars and flash their lights and applaud at certain times because I think people recognize the importance, but also the sacrifices that our workforce were making uh, to continue to develop and, and, and provide a necessary service. So those things were great. I think that's really important. Absolutely. And it goes right to what you were talking about earlier that, you know, whatever your role is, we're all in this together. So it speaks to a larger sense of community. But um, I'll, I'll let you go here. I've, I've borrowed a half hour of your time and you've shared some tremendous insights. I really do appreciate you being on the show and, and sharing all those with us. It's been very informative. Great. Appreciate the time, Jack. Absolutely. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on the Health Leaders Finance Podcast. Until next time, keep taking care of your patients and each other.